Good morning, church family. Our scripture reading begins in Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. If you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Least your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you, that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than that your whole body go into hell. It was also said that whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Well, good Sunday morning to you, brothers and sisters. Great to be with you and great to see a good crowd here at 8 a.m. on Sunday morning. Really excited about that. So thankful to be here, thankful to dive into God's Word together this morning. If you haven't already, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in verse 21 through 32 or so this morning. Uh, I want to say good morning as well to those who are joining us online on our worship guide. And if you have been reading ahead, which I hope you have, and as a part of the reading plan that's available to you online and in print, you can pick one of those up. But if you've been reading ahead, you know this morning we're going to be dealing with murder, adultery, lust, and divorce. Should be a lot of fun this morning. Glad you're here. I also want to say that there's no way we can exhaustively deal with all of these. And by the way, as a church, we deal with these because it's what Jesus is dealing with. We walk verse by verse through his word. So we're going to deal with some heavy things this morning. And we can't exhaustively deal with these. But I do want to steer you toward behind the message. Which is back uh, on Wednesday night. Along with some other opportunities for the whole family. And at behind the message I promise Pastor Jeremy will answer every question you've ever had about divorce or lust or adultery. So come Wednesday night be part of that uh, behind the message. Let's jump in. I, I want to start this way. Several years back, Dr. Billy Graham made an unsettling, disturbing, attention-grabbing statement. Billy Graham on national television said this. He said, I believe that 85% of church members in America are lost and without a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Wow. That was a bombshell statement, it was an unsettling statement, it was an attention-grabbing statement, and it wasn't just intended to cause a stir, it was really intended by Dr. Graham to cause the grip to be loosened 
by many who were holding on to something that simply wasn't true. Something that simply wasn't real. It was a bombshell statement. Chapter 5, we saw last week that our Lord Jesus makes a bombshell statement in verse 20. Jesus here with infinitely greater knowledge, infinitely greater authority than Dr. Billy Graham, infinite understanding about the souls of men and women, drops a bombshell in his day. In his day, the, the understood and accepted standard of righteousness was a group of people called the scribes and Pharisees. We talked about them last week. The model for righteous living were these scribes and Pharisees. So Jesus, right in the middle of all this, drops a bombshell in verse 20. We looked at it last week, but again, it's the pivot passage for all of the Sermon on the Mount that we're in the middle of. Jesus says this, For I tell you that unless your righteousness exceeds, far surpasses, Actually, he's saying is of a total different quality than that of the scribes and Pharisees. He says, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. It's a bombshell statement. It's an unsettling statement. It's a disturbing statement. It, t- it grabs your attention. Jesus is saying clearly, and I want you to hear the kind of righteousness that these scribes and Pharisees live and what they taught, Jesus is saying in his day, is woefully inadequate of the righteousness of my heavenly Father or of the kingdom. And he's also saying here, if you're going to have a place in the kingdom, it demands a break with, a turning from, this idea of repentance, from this distorted, broken understanding that's been taught and modeled in your day by the scribes and the Pharisees. So we talked about that a little bit last week. We drew a big truth out of that that's going to kind of guide us even for, the, for today and next week. The big truth was this, that God demands an exceeding kind of righteousness. A, a surpassing kind of quality of righteousness. So don't hear that and say, well, I've got to do more, be better than these scribes and Pharisees. No, that's it. An exceeding kind, quality, a totally different kind of righteousness altogether that doesn't even come from us. Now, a question for you this morning. I know it's early. Get ready. So when Jesus is talking about righteousness here, an exceeding kind of righteousness, is he referring to positional righteousness, meaning I'm right with God by faith alone? Or is he talking about a practical righteousness, which refers to the way we live, the living out of our life? Is he talking about Positional, declared right with God. Or the life of righteousness that's lived out. Which is it? Ready? The answer is yes. <laughs> He's talking about both. He's talking about a righteousness of position, declared right with God, that will always manifest itself in a transformed life. Don't be deceived by what you hear so much of that you can... Be saved, walk an aisle, pray a prayer, have transformation, but it never changes the way you live. Jesus said no. So this righteousness he's talking about, I'll give you a couple big ideas. We drew one from last week. I'll add another one to it that's going to lead us into where we are this morning. Big idea from last week was this. 
The righteousness God demands is the very righteousness of Jesus himself. Graciously granted through faith and faith in him alone. An exceeding righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus. We talked about that last week. So this positional righteousness declared right before God. But then does that impact and affect the way we live our lives? Here's big idea, the second one that comes out of that this morning. It's going to guide us this morning. Those who possess the righteousness of Jesus. Those who have been made righteous. Believers, the redeemed, sons of God, children of God. Will pursue righteous living. Wholeheartedly obeying God's righteous word. I know that's a mouthful. If we don't get those two understandings, we're going to approach the next few verses all askew. And it's going to be a stumbling block for us instead of a righteous pursuit. We are declared righteous by faith in Jesus alone. Those who have been made righteous by faith in Christ alone will demonstrate a righteous pursuit in our lives that is totally different than our lives before we came to know Christ. What does that look like? How does that flesh its way out in our lives? Well, in Matthew 5, 21 through 48, Jesus is going to give you six examples. We're going to look at three of them this morning. And what these examples are this morning, I want you to hear this. Again, I, I don't want you to stumble over the next few verses and misinterpret them like the scribes and the Pharisees did. What, what we're getting ready to read and walk through are six examples of wholehearted pursuit. Not, not perfection, you'll never arrive... As righteous people who have been made righteous, we're now pursuing righteousness in our lives. And that's according to God's word. The, this life, remember, we said is going to be countercultural. A righteous life, according to God's word, surprise, is going to be countercultural. The world's not going to applaud. I assure you, the world is not going to applaud your view and your practice when it comes to marriage. The world is not going to applaud your view and your practice when it comes to lust and immorality and purity of heart that we pursue as believers. I'm not going to celebrate that. I assure you, even the way we view others and the value we place on others as image bearers of God, the world is not going to applaud and support that. So this righteous pursuit, it's countercultural, it's also unnatural, it's not what comes natural to you in the depths of your heart, I assure you. This view of others, this call to the way we treat and see others, this call to a purity of heart in the depths of our being does not come natural to you, does not come natural to me. It is the outward expression of a transformed heart that's been made right and is in the process of being sanctified and made more and more like Jesus. You see that? So Jesus is going to walk through some tough things that were very true in his day. Some lies that his culture were hanging on to. He's going to use a pattern this morning. And, and all these we're going to look at, there's a similar pattern. Jesus is going to say, you have heard that it was said. And the idea is, here's what you've been taught here's the way the scribes and pharisees have interpreted it heard in the, in the hebrew mind means to hear with understanding so he says 
Here's the way you understand the intent of God's word, the application of God's word. And then he's going to come back with all authority. and He's going to say, but I say to you. But I say to you. And there's a dislodging of the lie. And then there's a pursuit of the true, the true intent of God's word, the true purpose of God's word. All to honor our Heavenly Father who is in heaven. So it's a lot this morning. So we're going to try to take the first three of these righteous pursuits by God's people. You guys ready? Thumbs up, grunt, moan, something. All right, here we go. Example number one, verse 21. Jesus says, you have heard. That it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Stop right there. Jesus is quoting from Exodus 20, verse 13, the sixth of the Ten Commandments. And he exposes it. He says, here's the way you hear this today, based on the teachings of the scribes and Pharisees. You only hear it as it relates to the outward action. He says, when you hear this command of God, all you think about is this. In your mind, righteous living is not killing another person. That's good. We don't kill. But the scribes and Pharisees had taken this sixth commandment and merely made it an external thing. While they themselves found ways to harbor bitterness and hatred in their heart to their neighbor. Now watch this. While remaining innocent in their own eyes with regard to murder. They said, I haven't killed anybody. I'm good. While in their heart was bitterness and anger and wrath and malice toward others. Jesus comes back and exposes that. He says, listen, this command is so much more than merely an external conformity. He says it's about the inward disposition of the heart. Your heart has been redeemed. Your heart has been transformed. Your heart is being transformed in the likeness of Christ. So he comes back, verse 22, and he says, but I say to you, everyone who is angry with his brother Jesus takes it from the merely external, now gets into the depths of the heart, gets into our business. What about your heart, man? What's your disposition toward others? What's your attitude toward others who have been created in the image of God? He says, everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool." Jesus said we'll be liable to the hell of fire. That was an intentionally attention-grabbing statement there by Jesus. It was intended to awaken the hearer. It says, here's what he says. He says, anger in the heart, this seething anger, this disposition of anger in the heart toward a person or a group of people. You say, well, I haven't killed anybody, but I have this... I have a stewing disposition of anger or superiority toward a person or another, a, a group of people. He said insults, these are 
verbal expressions intended to demean or hurt or lower a person's value in the eyes of others. Then he goes on and he says, you fool, that was an expression of the day. It literally meant empty-headed. You good for nothing. And you say, well, that's just a casual expression. What Jesus is saying, no, no, that expression comes from a heart that really believes you are worth nothing. That's what the phrase meant. You worth nothing. You, you have no value. As Jesus is saying, that word that comes out of your mouth, it's not about running around saying, well, you shouldn't say fool. It's about a heart that does not value others as God does. It's about your heart. He makes an attention-grabbing statement in verse 22. He says, even these heart attitudes will make you liable to the hell of fire. And grabbing the attention of the Pharisees, basically what he's saying is this. The invisible heart attitude toward others, get this, is just as damning before God as the visible action itself. I didn't kill anybody. But your heart, man. Your heart attitude and disposition, thoughts, demeanor toward others. The intent of the Sixth Commandment, Jesus is teaching, you see that throughout the book of Matthew, the intent of the Sixth Commandment goes way beyond externals. It's rooted in love your neighbor as yourself. It's rooted in every human created in the image of God. You can write this down, we won't take time to look at it. James 3, James says, how can you curse with your mouth those who are created in the likeness of God? So, so the idea is this. Let me give you a big idea that flows out of this. We've got to get through this. Here's a big idea. I think it'll help us. God's redeemed people, and I'm going to give you several big ideas. I'm not going to try to number them. It's going to flow out of this. God's redeemed people pursue a godlike love for others created in his image. That's countercultural, it's not unnatural. No, I may not kill people, I, I may not even verbally abuse people, but I justify when my heart sets anger or superiority or, or whatever you ain't want to say. And I have less in my heart a view of others created in God's image. I, I don't pursue a God-like love. And I forget that person that I justify looking down on, that person I justify treating wrongly, that per, whatever it is, you fill in the gap. I justify that because I forget that person is an image bearer of God Almighty himself. There's a motivation there for the people of God. So Jesus takes and then makes an application of it. It's incredible. He says, so, okay, so here's what's going to happen as God's redeemed people. Surprise, we're going to hurt others. You're going to offend You're going to say things that demean. You're going to say things that wound. And all the husbands and wives in the rooms are starting to maybe even rehearse some things that happened recently. I don't know. We we do that. We're, We're still being sanctified. And Jesus says, okay, this principle of love as God loves is so important. He says, let me give you an application, verse 23. So, if you're offering your gift at the altar... And there you remember that a brother has something against you. 
you've heard this verse before, don't, don't gloss over this. In the mind of the Jew, he seems to be referring to the altar where the Jews would come and sacrifice, which is most likely Jerusalem is what he's referring to. There's nothing more important in the mind of a Jew than going to the temple and offering sacrifice to our God. And Jesus says, hey, you're doing that. And you're going forward with this external worship. And in your heart, you remember that someone has something against you. This is not someone doesn't like me. It's not the point. You have offended someone. You have hurt someone. You have insulted someone. Someone has something against you. The Spirit of God brings that up to your mind. Listen to the priority Jesus puts on it in verse 24. He says, leave your gift there before the altar. In the mind of a Jew, say, what are you talking about? Why would you ever abandon worship at the temple in Jerusalem? Jesus says, if in your heart a brother or another human has something against you, you leave, you go. He says, first, verse 24, a statement of priority. First, be reconciled to your brother. You're going to make it right. So much as it's up to you. I know there's extenuating circumstances sometimes. I get all that, but the heart is here. You pri- here here's your big idea. I'll give you another one. God's redeemed people prioritize forgiveness and reconciliation. With those we have wronged. Heart of love. This is connected to the first one Jesus is talking about. Heart of love. God-like love toward others. Image bears. I have wounded. I have affected. I have offended. Maybe even unintentionally, whatever it is. A fellow image bearer. I have anger in my heart. I have a disposition in my heart. I've hurt them. Jesus says, go. Be reconciled to your brother. Then come. Continue in your worship by the way it's interesting I don't think I've ever caught this before as I've read this that kind of pursuit of reconciliation might cost you because when Jesus spoke these words this is incredible watch this when Jesus spoke these words he was speaking to those who were living in Galilee he was talking about worship that they would carry out in Jerusalem 80 miles away And he says, if you're there in Jerusalem, and you're worshiping, and you realize you've offended someone back here in Galilee, drop your offering, leave, travel the 80 miles, and come make it right. It's a point of priority. And it's a point that sometime in this pursuit of a godlike love of others and making things right, it may cost you something. That's the point. Further application, I'll cover this quickly. He says, what's the implications when you don't? Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court. In other words, do everything you can before it gets into the legal system to make it right with your brother or sister, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, the judge to the guard, and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Jesus, what are you saying? Initiate and pursue forgiveness and reconciliation while you can 
or it will go to the courts and the legal system and it will be out of your hands. That's the progression. Pursue it now. Make it right now. Go now. So Jesus is presenting a picture here of the value we are to have of other image bearers and the priority from our heart in the spirit. You've got to hear the spirit of repentance here in the heart of a believer. Lord, I realize I've wronged a brother or sister. I'm not going to argue about it. I'm not going to justify it. I'm going to go make it right. That's the attitude of a mourning heart, a repentant heart of a believer that walks in wholehearted obedience to the intent of God's word, not just the letter of it. Love your neighbor as yourself. That's example number one. Everybody all right? Good stuff, isn't it? Down in our business this morning. Example number two. Verse 27, Jesus says this, he says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. Jesus is going to take now the seventh commandment and address the way they have heard it taught, the intent of it that they've heard. And he says, here's the way you've heard it, merely as an outward action. In other words, the way you have been taught by the scribes and Pharisees and the intent of God's perfect law is this. Here's what you've been taught. Righteous living is not having sex with someone who's not your spouse. Now listen, let me be clear. We don't have sex with someone who's not our spouse. All right. But Jesus is saying the intent and the heart behind this commandment is so much more. It is a heart attitude, a heart posture. In other words, here's what the Pharisees had done. They lusted and fantasized about other people's wives or future wives or just any female they saw, but they reckoned themselves righteous so long as they were not having sex with another man's wife. Thus they relegated the seventh commandment to merely external compliance instead of a purity of heart. Jesus says it's about the heart. He goes on and he exposes that in verse 28. He says, okay, but I say to you, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent, pause right there one second, parenthetical, looking with lustful intent may be reality or it may be virtual. Might be on a screen, might be at your workplace. Same idea. To look with lustful intent has already, this is a mind-blowing statement of Jesus' day. He says, look, you exercise the lust of your heart, you have already committed adultery with her or him in your heart. I want you to stay with me here because this is heavy in our day. You don't realize that our view as believers when it comes to sexual purity and the condition and position of our heart will fly directly into the face in the culture in which you live. 
Jesus is using the word lust here, which literally means a burning in the heart. The idea of lust is that sinful, distorted version of our God-given human desire to love. Lust selfishly takes, it consumes, which is a distorted version of of what God has put in our hearts to love, to give, to serve. Lust takes. Love gives. Lust seeks gratification for sexual passion with a person that does not belong to that person, belongs to someone else, or is going to belong to someone else in the future. may not be someone's spouse yet, but it will be in the future. It's not yours. It doesn't belong to you. It's not in the union of marriage as God has ordained it. It seeks to gratify sexual passion outside of God's design in covenant marriage as He has intended it. Lust dehumanizes a person, makes people objects of consumption. This is where it ties back to commandment number six. Instead of fellow image bearers created in the image of God, lust takes. Pharisees were able to say, look, we're good. Hadn't committed adultery. We're good. And Jesus says, what about your heart? He makes the same statement here and similar to the statement he says before. Basically, the heart attitude regarding lust before God is just as damning as the outward action of adultery itself. What about your heart? What about the condition of your heart? You say, well, that doesn't make sense because there's going to be different implications to the act of adultery and and, and the heart disposition. I get that, but understand this. There may be different cultural implications. Society still has a stigma, stigma toward outside or outright adultery, but the society you live in will celebrate and will applaud lust and even enable your lust. More money is spent on pornography in America than all major sports combined. Your culture will celebrate and say, don't worry about the intent of the heart. Don't worry about this pursuit of purity. We will be countercultural when we say, no, I pursue purity in light of my righteous God because he's transformed me. It is a fight for purity. That's the heart behind this. Not just mere external compliance to the commandments. So let me give you a big idea that flows out of this quickly. God's redeemed people pursue God-honoring purity of heart. Heart. 1 Samuel 16, 7. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance. The Lord looks on your heart. Psalm 51, 6. David said, Behold, you desire truth, rightness, righteousness, In my innermost being. Jesus, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. So it's a a fight, it's a struggle. We we are redeemed, Our, our sin is forgiven, yes, but there's this ongoing struggle with this thing called lust in our hearts, and Jesus recognizes that there's an ongoing struggle. Sin is paid for in our lives. 
But sin is not completely eliminated in our lives, and we all recognize that. We struggle well. Jesus recognizes that, verse 29. So he says this. Here's the application. Therefore, in your fight for purity, he says, if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. The right eye was extremely valued. If you didn't know that, it's a very valuable thing. He says, that right eye, which is a good thing, causes you to stumble when it comes to purity, pluck it out. He says, if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of the members of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. Now again, this is hyperbole, but don't discount it as something we don't pursue. Jesus, what's, what's the principle here behind this? And I want you to get this. Here's your big idea. God's redeemed people pursue decisive action to win the battle with lust. Our sin is atoned for, our sin is paid for, but it's not eliminated. There is an ongoing battle with this thing called lust. There is a pursuit of purity of heart to honor our righteous king in our lives. And Jesus gives you some application here. God's redeemed people pursue decisive action to win the battle with lust. John Piper says it this way, do what you must to win the battle with lust. Jesus uses extreme language here. We've seen this in our lives. We've seen this model. I've seen young couples who, in a pursuit in their dating relationship, in a pursuit of purity, have determined they will not kiss even until marriage. In, in their effort to fight for purity, do you say that's legalistic? That's the most extreme thing I've ever heard in my life. No, it's a pursuit of purity and willing to say we will defer even a good thing, even something we have every right in the world to do. Because our pursuit of purity and Christ-likeness matters that much to us. You're, you're going to be blown away by this one. I, I knew of it, a young middle-aged man, because of the stumbling block of his smartphone, he gave up his iPhone and went and purchased, you ready for this, a flip phone. <laughs> a flip phone? What is... You said that's the most legalistic thing. I've ever... Why in the world would you do that? Listen to me. Because for this man, rather to do without the convenience of his iPhone, he would rather be without that convenience than even be tempted with the temptation of pornography that ravages his mind, dehumanizes others, shrinks his soul, and his relationship destroying. That's what pornography does. And he says, if I have to give up a convenience of a phone in this fight to run from it, I'll cut off my hand. Because as redeemed people of God, we will do whatever it takes to pursue purity because our Heavenly Father is worth it. It's the idea. When I was in seminary, I was taught by our seminary professor, our seminary president. Many of you guys have heard this. Just some practices that I've still tried to carry out 25 years later of how to interact with members of the opposite sex. I don't ride in a car with a woman alone. I don't eat a meal with a woman alone. I, I don't, even in our office, we don't ever meet behind closed doors without a glass where some can see in. We, we, I don't engage in a counseling more than once. In other words, the idea is this, we'll do whatever it takes to pursue purity. 
We live in a generation, and I'll just mention this very quickly, an application of this is we live in an applica- a, a generation, a culture where pornography is epidemic among the people of God. Statistics say that 70%, and, and you know, who can get accurate statistics about pornography, right? We don't know if they're right. Statistics say 70% of Christian men view pornography monthly. Staggering effects on the mind. And at the same time, just in case you think this might be only a male problem, one-third of women in America say they view pornography on a regular basis. Soul-shrinking, dehumanizing, epidemic in our country for the people of God. We can push that aside. We can fight against that in this pursuit of Christ and Christ-likeness because we have this grace power within us. But there are times we have to cut off our hand or pluck out our eye in this righteous pursuit of holiness and purity in Jesus in our lives. One verse, write this down, and we're going to look at the last example very quickly. Jesus says this, or actually the Apostle Paul says this in 2 Timothy 2.22. He says, so flee youthful lusts. And pursue righteousness. Run from, run to. And run with, he says, with those who call on the Lord from a pure heart. You run with. In our pursuit of purity, at times we run from. At times we're running to righteousness, Christ, Christ likeness, his word, his truth. And we're running with those who can walk alongside of us in biblical communion. There's this call to purity of heart that goes way beyond mere externals. Let me give you the last one quickly. Example number three. Jesus says this. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Now what in the world is going on here? Quick disclaimer. I cannot exhaustively deal with marriage and divorce here, remarriage, all that. We will deal with it much more when we get to chapter 19. Jesus deals with it there. We'll talk a little bit more Wednesday night behind the message. Let me just give you an overview quickly of what Jesus is saying here. Here's how they had heard it. This commandment about adultery and the prizing of marriage. Here's how they had heard this and what had been translated in their culture. Divorce can occur for any reason as long as. You give a certificate of divorce. Talk more about that in a minute. Certificate of divorce was given to the woman granting her permission to remarry. Was given by Moses in Deuteronomy 24 as a concession due to their hardness of hearts. And intended to uphold the sanctity of marriage and protect women from unnecessary divorce. The Pharisees took it and used it as an excuse. Now watch. And they had taken on culture's low view of God-ordained marriage and distorted this scripture to support divorce for any reason whatsoever. That was the cultural view. Sound familiar? Jesus says, listen, it's not just about you saying, well, I had a good reason for divorce. Jesus says it's much more about your heart attitude toward this God-ordained institution called marriage. That, by the way, the people of God should be salt and light in the world when marriage is demeaned and dishonored. We want to see it as God sees it. We want to pursue it 
As God calls us to pursue this thing called marriage. Jesus comes back, verse 32, quickly. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the grounds of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Quickly, what do do you mean by this? How does Jesus view divorce according to this passage? Very quickly. Ready? Jesus says divorce is not even recognized. He says there's no grounds for it. Except, he says, in the case where sexual immorality has occurred. Except Paul takes it in 1 Corinthians 7.15 and says, except in the case of abandonment. We'll talk about those later. General principle is this. That when a divorce without grounds occurs, Jesus is saying any subsequent marriage is the same as adultery. Because divorce without cause is not even recognized. You say, Pastor Mike, that's the most cold, limiting, all the implications of that are vast. I get that. I get that. I'm holding out the measure and the standard of how Jesus sees divorce and how Jesus sees marriage. He sees divorce. He says, it's not even recognized. has no grounds except for these few cases. You say, why is it like that? Because Jesus has a high view of the institution of marriage. Let me read this to you and we'll close. Matthew 19, verse 5, Jesus says this. Again, we'll cover this in detail much later when we get to Matthew 19. Jesus said, in the conversation about divorce and remarriage, he said, Jesus, how do you view marriage? He says, therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife. The two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two, but one. What, therefore, God has joined together. Let no man separate. Big idea is this, God's redeemed people honor the institution of marriage as God ordained it to be. We have a high view of marriage. And men, just so you know, and I'll speak as a man to men, this doesn't mean you're honoring marriage by saying, well, I didn't get a divorce, We've, we've hung in there for 30 years. Do you honor marriage? Do you pursue your spouse? Do you rejoice in the spouse of your youth, as Proverbs says? It's way beyond saying, well, we're not divorced. It's an honoring of marriage. It's a high view of this glorious institution of this thing called marriage. Jennifer and I got away to Asheville on Friday night. I'm not going to give you any more details than that, but it was a joy to celebrate this gift of marriage that God has given to us. That ought to be our posture and our practice, not merely, well, we haven't got divorced. No. Marriage is a Union between one man and one woman, ordained by God for life. And that's the way God has ordained it to be. We're going to close with this. We've covered a lot. I'm going to ask the team to come on up and just begin to play. And we'll we'll close with this thought. And this is it. We've, We've covered a lot this morning. Jesus goes way beyond the external pursuit to our heart attitude. As we wrestle with some of these things this morning, and I pray the Spirit of God is dealing with some heart attitudes and heart motives more than just externals. Final thought is this, what is our motivation? We'll cover this more next week, but in verse 48, Jesus wraps up this whole section. He says this, sounds like an impossible verse. He says, you therefore must be perfect 
as your heavenly Father is perfect. We easily read that and we go, well, I can discount that because nobody's perfect, right? Right, only Jesus. But the point is, our pursuit of righteousness is about displaying the perfection and the righteousness of God Almighty. It's about Him. And my motivation is never to lower the standard, never to conform to the world, but have a pursuit inspired to honor my Father, motivated by grace, empowered by the Spirit within me, so that I can be salt and I can be light and the world will see your good works and my good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. To Him be the glory. Amen? Pray with me. Father, thank you for this truth. I pray you take these things and you burn them into our hearts. Call us to repentance. Call us to action. Call us to pursuit for your glory. By your power. For Jesus' sake we pray. All God's people said, Amen.